we're increasingly seeing that the cities that don't digitally transform to meet up with those citizen expectations and business expectations, they in fact lag in terms of economic viability across the board. So they don't attract talent, they don't attract businesses, which altogether makes it sort of, you know, a collective no-brainer, I guess you'd say. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. I'm Marcella Cavallero, Esri Manager of National Government Emerging Business, and I'll be your host for today. You just heard Allison Brooks, Research Director for Smart Cities Strategies and Public Safety at IDC, spotlight the importance of modernizing cities to remain economically viable and serve citizens more responsibly. Today, many municipalities are using location technology and data-driven decision-making to make their cities safer, smarter, and more resilient. Here, Esri Urban Analytics Lead, Amin Ra Mashariki, investigate real-world examples of digital transformation in leading-edge cities. Good morning, Allison. Thank you very much for joining us today to have this great conversation with you about smart cities and the Internet of Things. You're welcome. So I'll start with, as of today, what do you believe are some of the most impactful and specific ways the Internet of Things is going to transform the public sector? And then also, why is IoT so important for governments? Well, when we think about it from a smart cities perspective, it's the granularity of the data that you're getting. So we are constantly urging our smart city clients to invest in IoT because you have all sorts of new data sources that we haven't seen previously. So, for example, like ShotSpotter, five, ten years ago, it didn't really exist, that kind of data. So that's just one example of, say, a million examples of different types of new data that are being generated every day. So... In addition to just the new data sources, there's also a far more granular level of of data that you're getting. So, you know, water meter feeds, uh, for example, and, and metering, you can get reports on usage by the second or at the very worst by the hour, where, whereas it used to be sort of a monthly check-in kind of manual process. So there's more granular data that way. Um, you have faster access to all of that. You have a predictive kind of proactive ability once you actually work that into your workflow that way. This obviously results in improved decision-making and gives greater sort of ROI from both a societal perspective and an economic perspective. And then when you're really trying to parse that out in terms of outcomes, you know, socioeconomic, uh, environmental, sustainability, all those things come into play that way. So we kind of think of it not just as the actual bit, though, the device, the endpoint kind of thing. We think of it as an IoT platform specifically. So that's where we see actually the most value to end users. And if you want a couple of examples, water regulation is one, but for example, like connected LED street lights, those types of implementations, you know, they have really interesting returns on investment of like sort of 60% cost savings within, you know, a couple of years of implementation. Connected trash bins similarly are like 40 to 60% ROI, uh, smart parking, similar kind of results. So everywhere you see these sort of what I would consider Consider to be cherry picking wins almost in a smart city context. Smart parking, connected trash bins, those types of things are easy to implement and have high value. And so from the perspective of how you want to mature your smart cities over time, you can easily demonstrate to your leadership those types of wins um, with very little risk and little investment, really. So what cities are leading the way and in what ways are they innovating? From my perspective, Copenhagen, New York City, Chicago, Dubai, for example, all of those. But I don't think that it's limited to just the sort of large mega metropolises either. Like there's all sorts of smaller, small towns. I'm from Canada originally, and there's a small town a couple hours from where I grew up called St. Albert. But they have a whole smart city strategy, IoT-enabled garbage bins, all sorts of stuff. So the size doesn't matter actually in terms of the implementation difficulty. And that's where I think there's a real sweet spot for both cities and the vendors in the community and the partner ecosystem to take advantage regardless of size of the metro. 
Copenhagen, they are integrating and bringing to market not just open data, but private data, public sector data, telco data, all that sort of stuff into one large marketplace where they're able to then have the development community or citizens or whomever pick and parse whichever data sets they want, pay for them as if it was an actual marketplace and create whatever solutions they see fit. So they're really interesting. New York, obviously, just by virtue of the, the density, they're, um, they have 1,000 things going on. And from an IoT perspective, they're just super interesting. And we worked on on the IoT guidelines that New York has published and put out to the community. Uh, we work with them to develop those. So and those are available online if you just go to the, the New York City website. That's sort of just a guide for any city looking to actually implement any kind of IoT solution. It guides them through what they have to think about from infrastructure perspective, stakeholders, privacy, you know, the, the actual technology itself, etc. So it's, it's all out there because I think that there's this greater interest in smart cities and in, I think, just society as a whole into working more cooperatively and not having to reinvent the wheel every single time a given city or agency wants to do something. So there's a lot more of that technology-mediated ability to share best practices and implementations, and I think that's new for people these days. Dubai is really interesting because they're a sort of a greenfield, there's net new cities kind of thing. There's, they don't have that legacy infrastructure that they have to wrestle with or bridge or patch or band-aid, right? So they're able to start completely wholesale net new. Besides IoT, what other forces are driving the smart cities trend? A couple things. So I think the first thing is the cloud, the enablement of all of this via cloud. The scalability and the economic feasibility of all of this I don't think would have been possible, say, 10 years ago. The consumerization of IT is a huge factor in the sense that basically I think what happens is you and I realize what we have available to us at our fingertips on our smartphones, or in your case, two smartphones. <laughs> so that makes everything the old sort of traditional way of delivering services across the public sector increasingly unpalatable to your average citizen. So they want, for example, their service request through 311 to be tracked much like the Domino's Pizza app is, where you know exactly where it is through the whole system. And they see no reason why it shouldn't function similarly. And yet government is typically sort of funded and, and reactive. So there's a little bit of a disconnect there. But I think those are the, the key things that are driving this interest in moving municipal and sort of state service delivery into the 21st century more so that it actually, you know, is it runs in parallel a bit more with the broader business community. Interesting point you brought up, 311. I know in New York City, they're moving to a newer 311 system and they're partnering with Watson Analytics. What role do you think data and analytics plays in sort of driving smart cities? Well, it's, it's interesting you bring up Watson because that's exactly where New York is actually going there. And all of the 311 folks that I'm talking to now, they really want to leverage that whole cognitive and AI angle to predict and be able to be ahead of what the customer needs and to relieve the customer of needing to navigate through the system itself, right? So that's why they're using that. I work with Watson folks on an education program, so I'm familiar with A, how it's uh, brought to market and other sort of public sector verticals, but also um, why it's of interest to the 3-1-1 people. And I think we're getting into that whole Siri-enabled, Alexa-enabled world, and that's just the next phase in terms of what people actually consider to be sort of commonplace. I was talking the other day with a real-time crime center folks in New York City, and they said that what they're trying to do is get their analytics to that next stage where they're not having to run the searches for themselves. The system itself is actually running and telling them what the connections are without the prompting and the searching. And, and, and that's important, again, I think, because you're looking at you know the sheer volume and vastness of all of these data sets, and it's 
like humanly impossible to search and sift through all of that to find something that actually is the connection or pattern that you're looking for. So that's where I think the marketplace is going in terms of what and how vendors in this space need to be enabling their solutions. So let's pull it back a little bit and let me just ask you, what is a smart city and you know, what's, what's your definition? So our IDC Government Insights definition of a smart city is the digital transformation of the urban ecosystem to meet environmental, financial or social outcomes. So we, we talk about, you know, using, using technology to solve problems and deliver on outcomes. So you started walking down this road in terms of what IDC has been doing. But let me ask, IDC has developed a maturity model for smart cities. It's built on the idea that there are five stages in the life cycle of a smart city. Can you break down the model for us? Yep. The model has uh, five stages, as you say. So the first is ad hoc. The second is opportunistic. The third is repeatable. uh, And then it goes managed and optimized. And basically what it is is a framework of stages, measures, actions, and outcomes that are required to effectively transform a a given city. And each of these stages builds iteratively one after the other. So in the first stage, the ad hoc stage, you're really just running small pilots. The second, you you have like a foundation established, but you're not not really, you're sort of still finding your feet in given project areas. The fourth managed is where you have like a citywide strategy in place. Transformation is occurring across all your business units. And then fifth, from an optimized perspective, this is where your outcomes are agile, you know, they're innovative. Innovation is embedded across the enterprise. And this is coordinated across all of your various departments and and allows you to sort of competitively differentiate. So we assess cities and states, and actually we've assessed a nation's cities actually to help them create benchmarks for where each of those cities need to move. So our model has 19 sort of sub-dimensions that we assess across five dimensions. And those dimensions are vision, culture, process, technology, and data. And I think it's important to recognize that only two of those are really kind of technology related. The rest are sort of more on the softer side in terms of organizational capabilities and capacity. So anyways, our model allows us to go pinpoint where a given city is on those five categories with respect to those 19 areas and really to provide them with a roadmap to get to a managed stage as it pertains to, say, vision. It might be different in terms of culture and technology, but we have a, a very granular understanding of where where each city might might sit in that regard. And so that's part of our business is we work with cities across the country and globally, in fact, to, in fact, make those assessments of where cities stand and where they need to work on to fill those gaps and mature. You talk a lot about the need to make the business case, to have business outcomes, and to drive smart city adoption. Uh, Can you explain how and why that's important in a civic context? Yeah. So back to that whole thing about needing to track what you're measuring and and all that sort of stuff. Cities are really cash-strapped, right? Um, Municipal governments themselves are cash-strapped. So you need to actually really be crystal clear on what it is that you're trying to do from a socioeconomic, environmental perspective and how you're going to de-risk that. And I think that going through that process allows you to really track sort of the baseline and then what was accomplished before and after. And that's the only kind of way you can kind of get to that sort of real targeted, concrete ROI for these initiatives. And that's actually at the end of the day, the only thing that kind of matters to a whole host of people like citizens. That's what matters to citizens that they know that their tax dollars are being spent correctly. And it matters to leadership in terms of their electability, ultimately, at the end of the day, when things are running smoothly and people feel like they're part of this, you know, really high functioning community that reflects back on leadership and just attests to their electability. What kinds of forces are getting in the way of smart cities? How come smart cities adoptions can't happen faster and in more places? 
so there's the, the cost constraints that we were just talking about, obviously. There's the also this element of complexity in terms of just what's available, bridging those sort of old and new, the legacy technologies, the, the completely new platform sort of space, trying to bridge all of those things. So when I think about it specifically within a law enforcement context, you know, you're looking at ShotSpotter on the one hand and then, you know, a 40-year-old CAD system that just runs your 911 system. And those are mission critical, you know, major operations and investigative systems. So there's a, the difficulty of sort of parsing or blending the two of them together can be a challenge. I think working across silos is something that is a challenge for people and increasingly a reality in terms of just needing to understand, for example, how it is that your operations center all your cameras, for example, that are sort of maybe the first priority of the police, but how is it that they can be leveraged as an enterprise-wide asset across the enterprise so that parks and transportation can leverage them? You know, obviously police often have the sort of the override if they need to be, but once you're able to work more effectively across various departments and silos, then I think that you're constantly sort of going to market or implementing something that's just single purpose anymore. And I think, you know, increasingly culturally as citizens as well every single thing that used to be on the radio shack catalog is in my phone now right it's all of these things that we used to have different devices for the print everything is uh, on the phone so i think that municipalities and states they increasingly recognize that they have to actually work in a more concerted capacity what are the ways location technology and location intelligence play a role with smart cities and iot I think everything has a Latin longitude, right? So that's like the grammar of IoT or the grammar of smart cities. So just to give you an example, I stumbled upon this crazy company. Gosh, it's like the three-word Latin long for every single... What three words is what it's called? And it's every single place in the world um, has this three-word sort of designation. For example, if you're in the middle of like remote India, that person's temporary housing can have that Latin longitude associated to it, thereby they can have services delivered to it. That's how they can actually receive mail or whatever. So it's really interesting in terms of, you know, it's critical and pivotal to everything. In in law enforcement specifically, that's how you actually find people, right? So it's critical to every single kind of transaction that we do, you know, in terms of really kind of honing and and customizing and personalizing experiences, it's also critical and from a data amalgamation perspective as well. How about real-time awareness and real-time data uh, and connectivity? What are the potentials for governments and smart cities there? What I track specifically from law enforcement and public safety, this whole notion of you know enhanced situational awareness and real-time awareness and real-time crime centers and intelligence centers is critical. So it used to be, say, for example, if you were in New York, or just it doesn't have to be New York, but a given city, and say, I, I'm there and I had my purse stolen. And I would call 911, I'd have to go to a station and I'd have to create a report and somebody would, in a few days, maybe get back to me and they would do some initial looking around in garbages, etc., and trying to figure out whether they could, in fact, investigate and most of the time not. Today, the real-time transfer of information is completely turned on its head. So if I call the 911 in New York City, the real-time crime center gets alerted. They override all of the cameras that are around, the CCTV cameras. And this, so this is a real story of what happened. This woman's purse got stolen. They flipped on the, the, uh, the surrounding CCTV cameras, fed it back out to the officers. The officers began to actually move in the general direction of the, uh, of the assailant. And as the, or so the perpetrator, um, as the perpetrator sort of moved outward across sort of a 10-block radius, they just basically turned on the cameras and, and tracked them block by block to an apartment building, ultimately, and all of that happened within 30 minutes. 
So that's the type of like real-time situational awareness that we're seeing that's not future stuff. It's happening now and it actually allows people to, you know, intervene earlier. And, you know, a similar example is all of the Amber Alerts. You know, I designate my feed on Facebook so that if there's some sort of Amber Alert, the law enforcement across Canada just actually posts through me. I've already given it permission to do that whenever they need to. And then that actually gets pushed out to people as they see fit. So I think it's a it's a much more real-time, responsive and proactive world that we're living in. You know, keeping with uh, public safety, it's definitely a very hot topic and one of your chief areas of focus, as you mentioned. How would you characterize the conversation and issues around cities and public safety? And how are cities going to be impacted moving forward? Um, Looking outside of the U.S., in remote areas of like La Garrocha, Spain, they have sensors for smoke and fire so they can intervene, flooding in their cisterns underneath and in their infrastructure broadly. And then from a drone's perspective, what they're using drones to do there is to investigate the quality of the underground cisterns, which is, if you think about it, a really, a previously a very dangerous job for a person to do. But for a drone, it's much less risky. And, and even if it goes missing, it's not that expensive. So I think that what is happening with cities from a public safety perspective is that there's a growing uh, movement to work more proactively with the various data sets that they have and figuring out how to get that information back to the user for the the benefit of the community and, and the user. And so this notion of data-driven policing and proactive social services, all that sort of stuff. Fire, in particular, can really benefit from the types of data that, that IoT sensors can deliver to them. So they know the air quality or the smoke quality, the, you know, whether there's a particular chemical they need to be worried about. And then using sort of this location data, GIS, spatialization and visualization, you can actually project and figure out what the air flows are going to be like. I think public safety is learning how to work more proactively and effectively with all of these various data sets. Why should cities care about the whole idea of digital transformation? I mean, how does it actually make a difference in terms of how well they can engage and serve their citizens? So it's an interesting question because we're increasingly seeing that the cities that don't digitally transform to meet up with those citizen expectations and business expectations, they in fact lag in terms of economic viability across the board. So they don't attract talent, they don't attract businesses. And so then there's this process of sort of degradation and stagnation that kind of occurs. We see the linkage, the direct linkage between digitally transformed organizations, that citizen satisfaction and that economic growth and viability, which altogether makes it sort of, you know, a collective no-brainer, I guess you'd say. What are some emerging IoT-enabled practices in governments and smart cities, things that may be just on the horizon of wider adoption? Blockchain, for for me, I've become sort of our smart cities blockchain um, analyst or specialist on our team. That, I think, is going to be a key part of the delivery mechanism in terms of really when you think about what public sector uses are going to be for blockchain, it's more about obvious use cases like land transfer or registry type uh, implementations or any kind of revenue based um, like taxes and things like that. You can see, you can easily envision the, the use case for that. But we sort of see the intersection of IoT and blockchain as critical to, say, for example, uh, autonomous vehicles. So if you're, if you're all of a sudden you're in a world where you're actually driving, you know, all these cars are driving around without actual drivers and just they'd have just passengers. You have to do things like park and pay tolls, and blockchain could factor into that type of an equation uh, very easily to to sort of finesse the uptake of that combo solution. And then similarly, I sit on our cognitive working group at IDC, and it's across all of our, our various business units and analyst areas. 
And I really think that cognitive is one of those next areas in conjunction with IoT because IoT basically creates the problem that cognitive can kind of solve from an analytical perspective, right? So I, those are the areas that are of interest to me. So, for example, in community safety, there's a whole host of of involved stakeholders that might have some sort of trigger or warning alerted to them about a given individual you know, five years before that individual, say, stabs somebody or, or does something criminal. So there's, you know, the education system might have a trigger that actually alerts the teacher to X, Y, or Z, or, you know, some sort of social services person might be meeting with his or her mother, etc. So there's all these points of light. And the question is, how do you compress the time to analyze all of that and make sense of it in a way that is sort of proactive and preventative and keeps people out of the system before, you know, the right resources are responding to, to that sort of stuff. So it's, it's, that's where I see um, those advanced analytics and cognitive coming into play there to solve more complex, complex issues that really basically as humans were ill-fitted to support. Excellent. Allison, thank you very much for your time. And this was a very thoughtful, detailed, and really insightful conversation with you around smart cities and IoT. So thank thanks, you very Simon. much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. And thanks to Allison Brooks for demonstrating how location technology and real-time data capabilities enable the transformation of cities and communities. To learn more, download our ebook, Making Sense of Digital Transformation, at esri.com forward slash where. To keep current with new interviews, visit our podcast page at esri.com forward slash podcast.